Hi there everybody, Ed asked me to chime in and let you know about me. My name is Dan and I am weird. But I don't see weird as a bad thing. Weird just means people marching to the beat of a different drum, not fitting into that hole that society wants to shove you into. On my show, The Power of Weird, I'm talking to people like me, the weirder the better. So when you're done listening to this great episode of the Dead America Podcast, come on over to thepowerofweird.com and start the descent into your weirdom. And remember, be the weird you want to see in the world. I'll see you next time on The Power of Weird. Welcome to this week's episode of Dead America. I'm Ed Waters, your host, and this week we dive back into our second half of FDR, a man that changed the world with resolve and vision, without hesitation to forge his own way. That truly made FDR a unique man. Many disagree with FDR, his principles, and his values. But without FDR, we would not have some of the social structure that we live by today. Let's get into part two of FDR, A Man with a Vision. Faced with a dangerous world confronting every man, every woman, and every child. With stern conviction and steady resolve, FDR brought America out of a point in time that many cannot understand truly. The world that FDR was involved in and helped shape and mold brought us to the point that we are today a big industrial nation. In our episode last week, we left off with FDR securing the nomination for presidency and becoming the president-elect in the 1932 election. Definitely a historical time in our history of the United States. I was able to find some old audio from 1932 covering the 1932 election when FDR secured the nomination for presidency of the United States. I cleaned this audio up the best I could. I shortened it up a little bit. Let's dive in and listen to this audio clip before we carry on. The president began this campaign with the same attitude with which he has approached so many of the serious problems of the past three years. He sought to create the impression that there was no campaign on at all, just as he had sought to create the impression that all was well with the United States and that there was no depression. The present leadership in Washington stands convicted 
not because it did not have the means to plan, but fundamentally because it did not have the will to do. And that is why next week the American people will register their firm conviction that this administration has utterly and entirely failed, failed to meet the great emergency of modern times. very city, the president's exhortation that to abandon or to change one letter or one word of his policies would mean the destruction of this great republic. I have, I believe, avoided the delusion that this is a campaign of persons or of personalities to indulge in such a fantastic idea of my own individual importance would be to betray the common hope and the common cause that has brought us all together this year. I welcome the privilege of standing on this platform tonight with Governor Roosevelt and saying what will not be news to him or to the President of the United States. And that is that I support without qualification Roosevelt and Garner for the two highest offices in the gift of the United I hope America, chastened by disaster, suffering as she is, will rise to that liberal leadership which will replace suspicion with confidence and which never is afraid. And speaking of being afraid, let me pay my respects to the threats, expressed or implied, which are now being used to influence our votes. There are more than 10 millions of people out of work in this country. Some of them are in want and others threatened with it. Many have lost their homes on mortgage foreclosure. Others are threatened. Many have lost their farms. Others are threatened, and so we have millions of people sensitive, not only to the conditions of today, but apprehensive of tomorrow. It is no time to make threats, and so I hope that in this election we shall get a true reflex by votes, uninfluenced by fear or favor of the intelligence and of the intuitions of the great masses of our people. Broadly, I trust the intuitions of the many more than the, the assumed superintelligence of the few. Whoa, Bonanza lovers. Did you hear what he just said? Let's play that part one more time. Listen closely. Broadly, I trust the intuitions of the many more than the, the assumed superintelligence of the few. What we need is a full and free and honest indications of how the millions of this country feel inside themselves.
Mr. Chairman, what I am concerned about in this fast-moving world, in a time of great crisis, both at home and abroad, is not so much, I'm not so much concerned about a program as a spirit of approach, not so much concerned about a mind as a heart, program lives today and dies tomorrow. A mind, if it be open, may change with each new day, but a spirit and a heart is as unchanging as the tide. <laughs> I think we ought, all, all ought to go out to Hollywood from Hyde Park. We'd be good, you know. <laughs> they got us all trained. <laughs> That's all right. It looks, my friends, like a real landslide this time. But, but we have not yet had the returns from the West Coast. And for that reason, I'm making no official or public statement as yet. Well, Louie, it's all over now. These reports that came in during the evening were all fine and just what we expected. It was only right that we wait until we heard from President Hoover. And we have a wire from him now which the governor should see immediately, indicating that he concedes the election and congratulates the governor. And I also received a letter a moment ago, or a wire a moment ago, from Everett Ch Chand uh, Saunders, chairman of the Republican Committee, and he too extends Hardy's congratulations. Now it's all over. Congratulations to you. Well, of course, Jim, when Saunders gives up, it's all over. But there's only one thing that worries me a little. How on earth did you manage to lose those five states? Well, that's something I'm anxious to know myself. Bad teamwork, Jim, bad teamwork. I am glad of this opportunity to extend my deep appreciation to the electorate of this country which gave me yesterday such a great vote of confidence. It is a vote that had more than mere party significance. It transcended party lines and became a national expression of liberal thought. It means, I am sure, that the masses of the people of the nation firmly believe that there is great and actual possibility in an orderly recovery through a well-conceived and actively directed plan of action. Such a plan has been presented to you, and you have expressed approval of it. This, my friends, is most reassuring to me. It shows that there is in this country unbounded confidence in the future of sound agriculture and of honorable industry. This clear mandate shall not be forgotten, and I pledge you this and I invite your help in the happy task of restoration.
From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. And the new way you were made. Dance for girls and men, woman. Mr. We could use a man like Herbert Hoover As a boy, I used to watch Archie Bunker and All in the Family show, and I often wondered what that theme song meant. Now I know a little more about it, and I understand what that actually meant. President Hoover won the Republican nomination in the 1928 presidential election and decisively defeated the Democratic candidate Al Smith. The stock market crashed shortly after Hoover took office and the Great Depression became the central issue of his presidency. Hoover pursed a variety of policies in an attempt to lift the economy, but opposed directly involving the federal government in relief efforts. This is why Hoover lost, and this is why FDR won the presidency in 1932 election. Economics can play a great role in deciding who becomes your President of the United States. And this is a decisive victory for FDR over Hoover because of the onset of that Great Depression. FDR's victory over Hoover, it sent the direction of our nation in a total different direction. Since the 20th Amendment to the Federal Constitution had not yet gone into effect, Roosevelt did not take office until March 4, 1933. During the intervening months, President Hoover sought his cooperation in stemming the deepening economic crisis that culminated in the closing of the banks in several states during February 1933. But Roosevelt refused either to accept responsibility without the accompanying power or to subscribe to Hoover's proposals for reassuring businesses. Hoover himself granted that his proposals would mean the abandonment of 90% of the so-called New Deal. Thus, it was at a time of acute economic crisis and despair that Roosevelt, whose policies were still relatively unknown and untested, came to the presidency. 
Most of the nation's banks were closed. Industrial production was down to 56% from the 1929 level. 13 million or more persons were unemployed, and farmers were in desperate straits. Roosevelt, during the months since his election, had been planning wide-ranging measures to meet the crisis. He chose a cabinet which reflected his desire to hold the support of Republicans, progressives, who had campaigned for him, maintain a balance among the political and economic forces in the nation. The cabinet included three Republicans, Secretary of Agriculture, Henry A. Wallace, Secretary of the Interior, Harold L. Ikes, and Secretary of the Treasury, William Wooden. For the first time in history, the cabinet included a woman, Secretary of Labor, Frances Perkins. The other members were Democratic, representing both the liberal and conservative forces in the party, some coming from the South and West and others from the East. In his inaugural address, Roosevelt promised prompt, decisive action and somehow conveyed to the nation some of his own unshakable self-confidence. The Hundred Days The prelude was the enactment of several conservative measures to inspire confidence among businessmen and bankers. First, Roosevelt ended depositors' runs on banks by closing all banks until Congress, meeting in special session on March 9th, could pass a cautious measure allowing those in a sound condition to reopen. In the ensuing two years, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, the RFC, established in the Hoover administration, bolstered banks with loans and purchases of bank stock totaling $2 billion. Most weak banks had been eliminated and few survivors failed thereafter. Banking reform came later through the Glass-Steagall Act of June 1933. Designed to curb speculation by banks and to establish with Roosevelt's reluctant approval, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, guaranteeing deposits. The Banking Act of 1935 reorganized and increased the powers of the Federal Reserve System. In March 1933, Roosevelt redeemed two campaign pledges by introducing a program of drastic government economy, and proposing legislation to legalize beer of 3.2% alcoholic content. By December 1933, the 21st Amendment had been ratified, repealing the 18th Prohibition. The initial measures of the new administration helped 
to restore confidence in the economy, but did little to bring real recovery. It was only after their enactment that Roosevelt sent to Congress a series of measures and draft bills proposing the program that comprise the early New Deal. This program, proposed and enacted in approximately the first hundred days of the new administration, represented Roosevelt's effort as president to provide for all the diverse economic groups in the nation. He intended through these laws to bring quick recovery and to eliminate some of the causes of the Depression. The main emphasis in the early days of the New Deal was on the recovery, but some attention was also given to reform. First of all, federal funds were appropriated for the relief of human suffering. Congress established the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, FERA, and appropriated approximately $500 million for its operations. Roosevelt appointed as its administrator Harry Hopkins, who granted funds to state relief agencies for direct relief. Congress also established a civilian conservation corps, the CCC, which at its peak employed 500,000 young men in reforestation and flood control work. Mortgage relief aided other millions of persons. Roosevelt consolidated existing farm credit agencies into the Farm Credit Administration, FCA, which in two years refinanced one-fifth of the nation's farm mortgages. The Fraser-Limke Farm Bankruptcy Act enabled farmers who had lost their property to regain it. A sixth of the nation's homeowners threatened by mortgage foreclosures were aided by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, HOLC, established in June 1933. Congress, in 1934, established the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, to ensure mortgages on new construction and home repairs. At the time, Roosevelt cut back on public spending in order to balance the budget. By 1939, foreign policy was overshadowing domestic policy, as it became clear that war threatened in Europe. Even before Roosevelt took office, he had endorsed the Hoover administration's refusal to recognize Japanese conquest in Manchuria. From the onset of his administration, he was deeply involved in foreign policy questions. Most of these centered around the Depression. In the early summer of 1933, he refused to support international currency stabilization at the London Economic Conference. But by 1934, 
he had stabilized the dollar and had begun helping France and Great Britain to keep their currencies from being undermined by dictator nations. In November 1933, Roosevelt recognized the government of Soviet Russia in the mistaken hope that he could thus promote trade. Greater opportunities seemed to exist in negotiating reciprocal trade agreements with numerous nations, a program which begun in 1935. And in fostering more cordial relations with Latin American nations, in his inaugural address, Roosevelt had pledged himself to the policy of the good neighbor. When World War II began with Germany's invasion of Poland in September 1939, Roosevelt called Congress into special session to revise the Neutrality Act to permit a cash-and-carry sales of arms. Through the quiet winter of 1939 and 40, this aid to Great Britain and France seemed adequate and Roosevelt pressed Congress for only moderate increases in armament appropriations. With Hitler's sudden invasion of Denmark, Norway, and the lower countries, and the fall of France in the spring and early summer of 1940, Roosevelt and Congress turned to defense preparation, an all-age short of war to Great Britain. Roosevelt convinced that the victory by Germany and Italy would be disastrous to the United States, even gave Great Britain 50 overage destroyers in exchange for eight Western Hemisphere bases. Isolationists who feared that these moves would involve the United States in war debated hotly with those who felt that national self-interest demanded aid to Britain. Through 1941, the nation moved closer to war with Germany. After a bitter debate in Congress, Roosevelt in March 1941 obtained the Lend-Lease Act, enabling the United States to finance aid to Great Britain and its allies. In June 1941, Hitler launched a huge surprise attack against the USSR, and in September, Roosevelt extended Lend-Lease to the Soviet Union. Preventing submarines from sinking goods en route to Europe gradually involved more drastic protection by the U.S. Navy. By the fall of 1941, the United States was engaged in an undeclared war against German submarines in the Atlantic. Meanwhile, in August, on a battleship off the Newfoundland coast, Roosevelt met with Prime Minister Winston Churchill of Great Britain and signed a joint press release proclaiming an Atlantic Charter to provide national self-determination, greater economic opportunities, freedom from fear and want, freedom from the seas, and disarmament. Yet, it was in the Pacific 
that war came to the United States. Japan, bound in a treaty of alliance with Germany and Italy, the so-called Axis, quickly capitalized upon Hitler's victories in Europe to extend its empire in, in East Asia, Roosevelt, viewing these moves as part of an Axis world aggression, began to deny Japan supplies essential to its war-making. Japan was regarded as a relatively mediocre power. The danger that it could launch a damaging retaliatory act seemed light. Throughout 1941, the United States negotiated with Japan. But the Japanese, on December 7, 1941, struck Pearl Harbor. As millions of Americans listened to their radios, Roosevelt, on December 8, 1941, told Congress, Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Congress voted a war resolution within four hours. On December 11th, Germany and Italy declared war on the United States. War eventually took its toll on Roosevelt, and April 12, 1945, he died of a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Say what you will about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The man did a lot for this country and the world. And what he did for this nation and the world, we still prosper today because of it. That's going to wrap it up for this episode of Dead America. I hope you enjoyed part two of FDR, and I look forward to next week's episode when we look into Winston Churchill. So please share, like, and subscribe, and join us right here next week on Dead America for an exciting look at Winston Churchill. I'm Ed Waters. Thank you for joining us. Out.